Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew in three separate parts. The first, Matthew 4, 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The second comes from Matthew 13, 31 to 33. The parable of the mustard seed in the yeast. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. The third and final passage comes from Matthew 13, 44 to 45. The parables of the hidden treasure in the pearl. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. Hello, Elevation. I hope everyone is keeping well wherever you are today. My name is Mark Detweiler, and I have been asked to give today's sermon. My wife's name is Kim, and we've been attending Elevation for a few years. But unfortunately, all the disruptions arising from the pandemic have slowed the rate at which we have been able to get to know people in the church. Usually when we introduce ourselves to someone, we say that we're Eric Detweiler's parents. And that's, this generally gives people an idea of who we are. Eric is our middle child. We also have two adult daughters, Sarah and Rachel. Three sons-in-law, one grandson, and a Springer Spaniel grandpuppy round out our family unit. I'm not a preacher or a theologian, and I'm fairly sure that that will be evident soon enough. I am a civil engineer by profession. I spent the first 20 years of my career in consulting engineering, and then I made a bit of a career shift to university facilities management, spending 11 years at Wilfrid Laurier University before moving on to take my current position of executive director in facilities at Ryerson University in Toronto. So that's me. In a few short sentences, I've been able to give a pretty good sense of my entire world. My world may be very similar or very different than your world. But once a week or so, our collective worlds intersect at the Elevation Worship Service, and we hear this invitation in the call to worship. Imagine a world infused with the presence of God. For some reason, this particular phrase in the call to worship has resonated with me and captured my attention. I find myself reflecting on it whenever I hear it. What would such a world be like? Would it be a world of justice, peace, where everyone and everything is valued? Would it be a place where everyone is cared for, everyone has enough, and the earth and environment is treasured and sustained? This idyllic world seems quite different than the world that we occupy. Around us we see strife, division, competition. Some people have far more than they need, and others have nothing. Problems abound, and we see the world infused with the presence of God as something that's very far removed and disconnected from our daily experiences. But the call to worship invites us to consider a different sort of world, 
Does our call invite us to imagine a world that is a fantasy in the same way we might be invited to imagine a unicorn or some other fanciful but non-existent thing? Does it call us to ignore the realities around us and live in a semi-delusional state? There are a lot of people who would say yes, that the notion of a God-filled world is an illusion and those who pursue it are living a fantasy. But when I look at the, the scripture and at the teachings of Jesus, I don't see Jesus inviting people to ponder a fantasy that is separated from the current reality. Quite the opposite, in fact. I see Jesus inviting everyone to experience a more complete and fulsome reality than the one that we currently live in. Jesus invites me to expand my own little insignificant and finite world and experience a much broader eternal reality that is filled with the presence of God. Jesus' simple invitation to experience this God-filled world is recorded in Matthew 1, verse 17, where he proclaims, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This invitation is not new or unfamiliar. In the divine conspiracy, Dallas Willard notes, we are invited to make a pilgrimage into the heart and life of God. The invitation has long been on public record. You can hardly look anywhere across the human scene and not encounter it. God makes himself and his kingdom available, not in every way human beings have imagined, surely, but in a simple way, in a way that is paradoxically is quite familiar to billions of people. Paradoxically, because though multitudes have heard about this way and even insist upon its rightness, humanity for the most part still lives in a far country. So today, I want to accept Elevation's invitation to ponder a world infused with the presence of God. I want to look to scripture to gain an understanding of what that, would, that, what that world is like and how we might experience it more fully. So there are five things that I want to note about this God-filled world. The first thing is that the God-filled world is an ever-present reality. Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 to 17 tells us that the Son, that's Jesus, the Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, powers, or rulers, or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him, all things hold together. In, there's, in this verse, we read that all things were created in Christ. Take note that the world's all creation and all things are repeated five times. And we have a number of different prepositions that describe relate Christ's relationship to all things. Christ is over and before all things. And all things are created in Christ, through Christ, for Christ, and are held together by Christ. 
Now it's quite apparent that my entire world and your entire world and everything and everyone that ever was, is, or ever will be is included in the set of all things. And it would also seem to me that Christ being over, before, in and through all things is really the very definition of the word infused. So the world that is infused with the presence of God, in fact, includes my world and your world. God is not absent, never has been, never will be. Our world is infused with the presence of God. It is not a fantasy, and it is not something we need to imagine. Scripture clearly tells us that we are part of the God-filled world because we are part of God's creation. But wait a minute. My world is filled with problems and difficulties, injustice and all manner of things that are not consistent with a world infused by God's presence. And that brings me to the second observation about the kingdom of God. Although my world is within the realm of God's kingdom, it is not necessarily part of the reign of God's kingdom. God has left that choice up to us, and it would seem that we've chosen poorly. The world I experienced is actually a diminished reality because I'm the one ruling over it. Again, Dallas Willard writes, God's own kingdom or rule is the range of his effective will, where what he wants done is done. Accordingly, the kingdom of God is not essentially a social or political reality at all. Indeed, the social and political realm along with the individual heart, is the only place in all of creation where the kingdom of God or his effective will is allowed to be absent. Let's ponder that for a moment. The reality is that the entire creation is fused with God's presence, but within the human heart, we are permitted to believe that that is not the case. The true delusion is not believing that the world is infused with the presence of God. The real delusion is believing that my little world, my little kingdom, is all there is and all that matters. So that is the sad reality, and it brings me to my next observation. We are separated and disconnected from the effective rule of God. Our lives and the collective experience of humanity are a greatly diminished subset of the full reality that exists and that God would intend for us because we prefer to run our own show. But the good news is that God has not abandoned us to this diminished reality. The invitation stands, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The third thing I want to observe about the God-filled world is that in spite of our disconnection, Jesus brings the kingdom near. What did Jesus mean when he stated that the kingdom has come near? As I noted previously, I'm not a theologian and I have never studied Greek. But fortunately, there are a lot of people who have studied Greek and they have translated the original text into English in the following ways. The NIV, 
says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The English Standard Version, which is generally seen to be a literal translation from the Greek, says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the message, which is a modern day paraphrase translated from the Greek, says, change your life. God's kingdom is here. So we see some nuances in the translation to English. The kingdom has come near, the kingdom is at hand, or the kingdom is here. I was trying to think of something else that could be described as coming near, being at hand, or being here. The best illustration I could come up with was the internet. I am old enough that I predate the internet by quite a bit. When I was a kid, the only internet I was familiar with was the mesh lining inside my bathing suit. Those of you that are old enough will remember the first connection to the internet was through the dial-up modem, a hardwired, a hardwired box attached to the wall that would squeal away and was capable of delivering a single low resolution, the lightning speed of about an hour. But through the continuing evolution of Wi-Fi and cell technology, I can now stand here with my phone and say, the internet is at hand. The internet has come near. The internet is here. But what that really means is that the internet is available to be accessed here and now through this phone. I still have to connect to the internet and I can choose to do that or not. In a similar way, the kingdom, the statement that the kingdom is near still leaves room for my choice. I can reestablish the reign of God and connect my puny little world to the internal world infused with the presence of God, or not. When Jesus proclaims that the kingdom has come near, he was speaking to the fact that his coming had made the kingdom of heaven available to everyone in a new way. But he also instructed his followers to pray that the kingdom would come, that God's will would be done on earth, because the prospect remains that it may not be. The truth is that I can connect or disconnect at my choosing. I can do God's will one minute and not in the next. So as the establisher of the kingdom and the one who brings it near, Jesus speaks with authority on what that kingdom is like. He often uses parables. In today's scripture reading, we read four short parables that Jesus uses to describe the kingdom. We heard the parable of the mustard seed, the parable of the yeast, the parable of the hidden treasure, and the parable of the pearl of great price. All of these really short parables have a common theme. In each of them, we see something that is of value hidden among or obscured by things that are very ordinary. We have a tiny mustard seed buried in a lot of soil. We have small particles of yeast dispersed through a large quantity of ordinary flour. We have a hidden treasure in an ordinary field, and we have a valuable pearl that must be sought out among ordinary items. The fourth observation then is that the God-filled world is in and among the ordinary experiences of life. I think this is a very key point. We often misperceive 
that the God-infused world is an alternate reality, separate and distinct from the reality that I experience every day. We are looking for the big deal, the grand experience of God, and we do not look or see his presence in the mundane things of our daily lives. A few weeks ago, Melody did a great job presenting the parable of the buried treasure in the children's story. The story describes someone digging and then, thunk, comes across a treasure chest. The image presented is that it's a one-time discovery that changes things forever. But I think that perhaps we should replace that image with the idea that the kingdom is like gold dust or diamonds that are scattered among the very ordinary grains of sand, soil and rock that make up the field that is my everyday world. We don't see that treasure unless we are looking for it. And we need to keep on looking. So the fifth and final observation that I want to make is that the kingdom transforms everyday life, but it doesn't replace it. The treasure is in the field, but the soil remains, and it still looks like an ordinary field. The mustard seed grows into a tree and provides shade, but the sun still beats down. The yeast activates and aerates the lump of dough, but the flour is still there. The point is, even in the God-infused world, our lives will look very much the same. We will not be insulated from challenges and problems. Jesus told his followers that in this world, you will have trouble. And whatever challenges exist in my world will remain. But by faith, we believe that the presence of Christ can be a transforming influence even in the most challenging of circumstances. So having gone through these five observations brings us to the question, so what does this actually look like in my everyday world? In the Universal Christ, Richard Rohr recounts a vision that Christian mystic Carol Houselander had. She was in a crowded London, London subway train full of all sorts of people. And suddenly she saw an image in her mind. Christ in all the people around here. She continues on to say this, Christ is everywhere. In him, every kind of life has meaning and has an influence. Realization of our oneness in Christ is the only cure for human loneliness. For me too, it is the only meaning of life, the only thing that gives meaning and purpose to every life. The first time I read this description of the vision, I recall being really struck by it and pondering what it means. Did Carol Houselander have a vision of a spiritual reality? Did she envision a world infused with the presence of God everywhere she looked? Because we were all created by him and for him, and he holds all things together. So is what she saw, in fact, a reality in some sense? And what are the implications of this sense of Christ being everywhere? It changes my perception of everyday interactions. If I am feeling discouraged and my wife speaks a kind word to me, can I receive that as Christ's provision for me in that moment? Because my wife was created in Christ and by Christ and for his purposes. 
Similarly, can I, be in the, can I be the hands and feet and voice of Christ in my interactions with others? Can I minister to someone else as if they were Christ? Does that change my perception and how I change others and how I treat others? Jesus said that whatever you do to the least of these, my brothers, you do to me. Scripture also instructs us that we cannot say we love God who is not seen and despise another person who is standing right in front of us. Perhaps these verses are a little more literal than we might have thought initially due to the connectedness of all things in Christ. But because of this connectedness in Christ, the God-infused world, the presence of Christ, is truly at hand. Malcolm Mugridge phrased this concept so simply but profoundly in this way. He says, Jesus' good news was that the kingdom of God had come and that he, Jesus, was its herald and expounder to men. More than that, in some special, mysterious way, he was the kingdom. So I'd like to conclude today by reading from the words of a pastor, Reverend John Ames. You may never have heard of Reverend John Ames, possibly because he's a fictional person. He's the protagonist in Marilyn Robinson's wonderful novel, Gilead. Reverend Ames is getting on in years, but he has a seven-year-old son that was born late in life. Reverend Ames has a terminal heart condition, and he knows he will not live to see his young son grow up. And so the book Gilead unfolds as a sort of mem memoir that John Ames writes to his son to guide him as, as he grows. At the conclusion of the book, he writes these words. It has seemed to me Sometimes the Lord breathes on this poor gray ember of creation and turns it to radiance for a moment or a year or the span of a life. And then it sinks back into itself and no one would know that it had anything to do with fire or light. I have reflected on that and there's some truth in it. But the Lord is more constant and far more extravagant than that image seems to imply. Wherever you turn your eyes, the world can shine like transfiguration. You don't have to bring a thing to it, except a little willingness to see. Only who can have the courage to see? Theologians talk about a provenient grace that precedes grace itself and allows us to accept it. I think there must also be a provenient courage that allows us to be brave. That is, to acknowledge that precious things have been put into our hands and to do nothing to honor them is to do great harm. And therefore, this courage allows us, as the old man said, to make ourselves useful. It allows us to be generous, which is another way of saying exactly the same thing. I'll pray that you'll grow to be a brave man in a brave country. I'll pray that you will find a way to be useful. And with these words, let's pray together. God, we pray that we would be brave enough to seek and find your presence in our world 
and that we would respond to your presence in ways that transform our lives and the world around us. We pray this through Jesus our Lord. Amen. As we wind down this service this morning, we want to uh, take some time, set apart some time to celebrate communion together. And so if you haven't had time to gather a few simple elements, please take a minute to do that now. It doesn't have to be anything special, a cracker, a bit of bread, something to drink, um, just to symbolize this act that we're going to share together. And I encourage you to include your children this morning. It might be a little messy, not so tidy, uh, but invite them to participate as, as we share communion together as a community. Why do we do this? The story that we enact when we take part in this embodied practice is a story that is central to our faith. We revisit this story every time we take part in this simple experience. When we physically break the bread, we remember that Christ's body was broken for us and that in that breaking, we somehow become whole. It's a mystery. And when we drink from the cup, we remember that the blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins, and that somehow in that act, we are cleansed, body broken, and blood shed. Let's take the bread now, let's break it, and remember these words. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way, let's drink the cup and hear these words. After supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And may this sharing together today, all of us in our homes or wherever you are at this moment, may it remind us of the great gift of God's love. And may we go out into a new week surrounded by this great love that resulted in great sacrifice. And so we encourage you to, to join together in community, um, to encourage one another and to chat together. As we go, God, in your great mercy, send us out in peace. Amen.